Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Adam Campbell. We're at Elko Vineyard in Gaston. It's June 28, 2023. Adam, thank you so much for joining us, hosting us here today. Happy to be here. Uh, first question, which I know is one you've answered a lot, is why wine? Well, I kind of grew up in the business. Um, obviously, my parents uh, planted the first vineyard in what's now the Yamhill Carlton AVA, and I got to have the uh, pleasure of growing up here, um, helping my mom on the vineyard front. She was more of a viticulturalist, and my dad, who was a self-taught winemaker, for he made the wine here for 20 years. And uh, I, uh, I just, you know, you cut, catch the bug and you uh, have a love for wine, and, and then you can't imagine doing anything else. So tell me about that. Tell me about uh, your growing up and kind of your early memories of, of this place and of the wine industry. Well, um, so this was an abandoned homestead, that 200-acre uh, property. Um, both my parents had grown up in Oregon in the Hood River Valley. Uh, my grandfather was a pear farmer um, up kind of at the base of Mount Hood in a place called Parkdale. And uh, um, they wanted to grow an agricultural crop. Uh, they were interested in wine. They'd spent time in Europe. And I think they found this place. And uh, my grandfather gave it the thumbs up <laughs> as a potential for vineyards. But at the time when they bought the property and planted those first vines, there was only maybe 200 acres of grapes in all of Oregon. And I think I asked them once, I think they'd tasted one Oregon wine from Irie. So it's kind of like definitely a leap of faith. And um, even though it's a beautiful property and kind of an idyllic um, childhood in some ways, um, it was also definitely kind of part of the back to the land movement. And, and my parents really embraced that. And for the first two years, we didn't have running water or electricity, lived in a little trailer, and uh, they relied on all volunteer labor to plant those first 10 acres of vines. And I think that's why they had five kids. So we were their volunteer labor and uh, we planted grapes. And, and uh, I think one of the interesting things, I think from my parents' perspective, and it's probably true for a lot of the pioneers, um, you know, they knew that uh, there was a importance in growing grapes on the margin, um, getting the full flavor development of a cool climate. Um, but their aspirations were pretty modest. Um, so um, I think my folks thought that if they could plant 10 acres of grapes and, and make some wine, sell it out the cellar door, and maybe there would be a, a couple restaurants in Portland that might sh show the wines, that was kind of the height of their ambition. And, uh, you know, fast forward almost 50 years, you know, uh, we sell wine in wine shops and restaurants throughout the U.S. and in about 15 export markets. Um, it's just really, uh, I guess I've grown up with it, but it's, uh, when you take a step back, it's pretty incredible what's, what's happened in the Valley. You mentioned working with your parents as, as, as a youngster. Tell me about some of your early memories of, of planting or being, being on this property. Well, I think that, you know, um, one of the things that's really different back then than it is today is that because, um, there was no, um, availability to get financing, there was no, uh, guarantee that that it was going to um, be uh, a profitable endeavor. Um, it was mostly uh, volunteer labor, but also a lot of recycled materials. We grew the 
plants ourselves, um, lots of, uh, lots of uh, energy into um, what was kind of a pipe dream at the time. And uh, I think it wasn't until the, maybe the early 80s that there was um, a little bit of a vision that, that there's something special here and that um, we could have more ambition uh, my, both my parents are very entrepreneurial, and uh, um, I think they weren't going to let it fail. Mm. Uh, but they put in their 20 years, uh, and then they were kind of, you know, ready to retire. Uh, so it was a little bit of a quick entry for me, knowing that if I wanted to be a part of this um, endeavor, that I was going to have to jump in at a pretty early age. So I was 23 when I came back, and. Uh, Initially did vineyard development and vineyard management, kind of trying to stay out of my dad's way a little bit as the winemaker. Always lots of uh, father-son, you know, issues. <laughs> um, but I helped him in the winery and, and worked my first harvest in 1989 and, uh, and then really took on the vineyard side of it. And one of my parents' kind of long-term goals was always to be in a state winery and only um, have grapes that we farm and, and own the vineyards ourselves. Um, but it kind of seemed like a little bit of a pipe dream because we only had the 40 acres here on site. And so kind of uh, taking the entrepreneurial spirit and running with it, um, when I started in, in the 90s, you know, we bought a lot of vineyards, uh, both historic vineyards, mostly from family friends that, that were also enthusiasts that had planted around the same time as my folks. And so I was able to buy a couple historic vineyards as well as uh, embark on a big planting project at our Mount Richmond property where we now have 250 acres of vines. Um, and um, it was uh, the ability to, to grow those grapes that uh, had us um, then be able to uh, be 100% estate grown for our grapes. Mitch, being 23 when you came back, when you, when you, when you were growing up here, did you foresee yourself being here for, for the rest of your life? No, I think like most of the people that grew up um, doing the work that it took to, to get this thing off the ground, I know my brothers and sisters, we basically all made a pact that we were gonna get as far away as possible. Uh, and, and we didn't see the value or the um, excitement or uh, I remember my parents, uh, because they were both very uh, integral to the starting of the business, pretty much every vacation, every dinner, everything was all centered around uh, learning about wine, how to make better wine, how to make cool climate wines. Uh, the, the conversation around the dinner table was just strictly wine to the point where I think all of us kids, we literally would say to them, can you stop talking about wine? You know, we're just incredibly bored by it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I, I reached adulthood that I, uh, and found a love for wine that, um, that you uh, really could kind of see what they were talking about. And of course, the great side benefit of that is that um, even through my um, childhood, uh, hearing them talk about, um, not just about wine and winemaking, but also about running the business, about growing grapes, about um, trying to get financing, trying to uh, make this thing uh, work, um, I think, you know, a lot of those uh, lessons are, uh, are in my head, you know, from those early days. And uh, uh, I probably pull those things out when I'm thinking about what I want to do and how we can uh, also be entrepreneurial and grow the business and all those things. So when, after, after high school, tell me what you, what you, what you sort of did next and what your, what, what your plans were for the future. Well, I, um, 
after high school, um, I did what they now call a gap year, but I did two of them. And uh, but back then we called it just not going to college. And uh, what I did is I worked harvest here uh, for my dad in the fall. And then um, I traveled and uh, basically um, for two years, I uh, you know went to Europe and um, all through America and other places, just kind of trying to, to find myself. I loved working harvest, but I didn't know if it was really for me. And then my parents encouraged me to actually you know, go to college and, and get a degree. So uh, I went to Lewis and Clark College and I have a degree in political science because my parents said, just study what is exciting to you. And, and I was very interested in uh, systems and how things work and, and politics. And um, so I did uh, three years there. And then I, um, I did a year in Australia. Um, I'd met my wife overseas. Uh, she's from Australia and I was kind of following her. And I went to the University of Sydney for a year um, and I think that is what kind of cemented my um, path back because um, not, I wasn't doing anything with wine in Sydney, but um, I just really felt like um, I really missed home and I missed the property and the vines. And, uh, and so coming back and, and uh, bring my wife back with me from Australia, uh, I pretty much knew at that point. I finished up my degree at Lewis and Clark, but uh, pretty much uh, from then on, uh, focused on how to how to be a part of this endeavor. So you talked about your first kind of when when you after college and, and you got back into this, you were kind of focusing on the vineyard. So tell me about initial work and initial sort of learning. What did you what did you have What did you already know at that point, and what did you have to learn? Well, my parents had always said, and uh, I mean, it's almost become a cliche, but that you know. If you want to do good work, if you want to push the boundaries for what is potentially possible in wine, you need to focus on the vineyard and sourcing is just so important. Um, I knew that we had a great site here, um, but uh, that's not the whole story. There's amazing uh, soil types on other uh, AVAs in, in the region that I wanted to explore. And uh, I'm always a, a big fan of saying to people, they all, people often ask like, oh, what's the best vineyard in Oregon? And is it, you know, La Boheme or Roosevelt or Mount Richmond or Shea or some other vineyard? And it's kind of like, I always say, I think the best vineyard in Oregon probably hasn't been planted yet. There's so much available land. There's so many kind of historic family farms that, you know, maybe slowly over time will become vineyards. And uh, so a big part of my early days was, um, well, Let's try to forge relationships and either lease ground and then buy vineyards, plant new properties, um, just to continue that exploration uh, of what's possible in, in a relatively new industry. It's only been 50 years, right? <laughs> So I'm curious about that, about that, the, the forging relationships and the kind of looking ahead. Obviously, you mentioned this is this is your parents' dream first. So tell me about finding it, finding your way in it, and, find, and kind of making it your dream. When we when we start when I started back with my folks in the um, early '90s uh, full time, uh, I think we only had four or five employees. So it was a you know you had to find your niche. You had to find where you could provide value to the um, to the business, right? And I think initially it was on the vineyard front because my dad was very set in his winemaking, and uh, and the best place for me to provide value was on the vineyard side. I still do a lot of work. Um, I've got an amazing vineyard manager now, but um, I do a lot of work um, trying to figure out where to plant new vineyards. Maybe we just purchased another 200 acres over near Yamhill. 
uh, we're continuing that exploration um, through planting new new sites. Um, so that was my initial kind of um, job here. And uh, um, but I think that when you when you plant vineyards and when you uh, see them up through to production, you get this uh, passion for them and love for them. And I think I was probably inserting myself uh, a little bit too much into the winemaking side uh, in after about four or five years of doing the vineyard management. And I think that's when my dad, you know, thankful to me, realized, hey, he's really into this. He really wants to, to make this happen. So I'm going to step back. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad retired. Yeah, in the kind of, I guess in the late later 90s, uh, just kind of probably freeing up the space for me, um, you know, making decisions when it comes to winemaking. <clears throat> I mean, you can get input from other people, but at the end of the day, it has to be one person's, uh, you know, ego and uh, love for wine and everything's on the line, right? And I think if you, if you spread that out through too many people, uh, you're not going to do your best work. So um, I have amazing folks that work with me here at the winery. But at the end of the day, one person has to, you know, uh, take the brunt of whether it's you're making good decisions or bad decisions. And so I was really thankful that my dad said, you know, I'll, uh, I'll step back and, and let, you, let you run with it. At that point, as you were getting more interested in the winemaking side, tell me about, about that sort of learning. What, 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 what about production excited you? Well, I mean, again, bringing the uh, full product, the grapes that we love to grow, and, and you put so much energy and passion into the grapes, you kind of want to see it to the next stage. And, and even through onto the sales front, I mean, I'm very involved in that side too. I love um, thinking about how to, to uh, get more people um, to know about Oregon and to, to love what we love, which is these amazing wines. Um, and I think... Um, you know, production is uh, is probably where I can have the most impact uh, in terms of is winemaking mm -hmm. and making those big decisions that will allow us to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to just um, offload that to someone else. So uh, t tell me about the transition and about starting to make those decisions. Did you have confidence from the start, or what were some of the kind of early learning moments for you? I thought I probably had you know, more confidence than I should have. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents were really good, although, you know, I will say that at, there were multiple times when, uh, when we both kind of just blew up and said, I'm out of here, you know, I'm out of here. And then we all kind of came back together. And, uh, but I think it was, you know, the, all, all the conflicts around, you know, um, do it this way or do it that way from both sides were legitimately both trying to do the best job possible and to make the best decisions possible we just had a difference of opinion about how to get there mm -hmm. so then that's solvable because you both want the same thing you're just debating on how to get there and uh, um, you know I I make wine a lot like my dad did but um, I have the fortunate uh, situation <laughs> that um, this is, you know, is my life's work and the only thing I'm focused on where uh, both my parents had other things kind of tugging at them. My dad was a physician for many years and, and uh, always uh, um, kept kind of a foot into that world. And uh, so I, sometimes people say, oh, you're a better winemaker than your dad. And I'm like, well, he's a better doctor than me. So I don't know, like, 
you know, he got to do both those things and, and uh, you know, good on him for doing it. Uh, I just get the uh, chance to have singular focus and more, you know, we have a lot more tools now. You know, we've got, you know, more uh, professional folks to, to lean on and uh, to hire and to have um, help with things. So I feel, I feel lucky in that regard. Was there a moment for you, a vintage for you, that kind of felt like it was the first one where you had sort of put your stamp on things? Uh, 1997 was was probably that first vintage. Um, it's a vintage that we consider that was, you know, essentially made in partnership with me and my dad. But it was the first time that I really inserted myself into making some big decisions in the vineyard and then through into the winery. It was not a great vintage for Oregon, but we did really well as a winery. So um, it's a it's that funny thing where. You know, I think we were the highest rated wine in the Wine Spectator for 1997, which is a great honor. Unfortunately, because it wasn't a very good vintage, it was an 89-point score. So it's not like, you know, it's not like the high watermark or anything. But in a way, it is because it was like, well, we did the best work possible in a tough vintage. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and I had a lot of, my dad was kind of easing out, and I had a lot of uh, um, impact, I think, on that vintage. 1998 was a easy, super fun vintage, low yields, really great wines. And then in 1999, my dad retired and, and stepped back. But, you know, um, I'm really fortunate in that my parents, I think, um, saw that there was a lot of value for uh, the winery and for us as a family um, to have me be um, a full partner in the deal. So uh, right about then, we um, forged a way for me to purchase half the winery from them. And uh, so then um, going forward, I've, uh, I've always say I'm very fortunate as a second generation. I do have two brothers and two sisters, but uh, for the most part, um, you know, they're partners, uh, they will be partners in the future, um, but we'll, my wife and I will always own half of what we have here, which I think kind of allows us to then fully own it. And I don't mean literally, but just like to really push forward with it being my parents' vision and my my vision too. So you talked about obviously the growth and expansion. Tell me about as you're in the late '90s, as you're kind of stepping into this role. What were your kind of visions at that point for the future? What were the first things you wanted to do as as you looked ahead for Elk Cove? Well, I knew we needed to grow. Um, I knew you know just basic kind of math that you know this uh, winery project in through the '80s supported my my parents and their kids, the, our family, but all of a sudden we were gonna have more families here, right? And it was me and my wife and my kids and my parents and then my brothers and sisters. And I, I just felt like um, growth was the best way to make that happen. Um, and uh, we've continued, we've grown every year since. And not just, um, I think also it, you know, growth is a, is a major um, catalyst for being able to hire great people and to give them continuing opportunities. So I've got an amazing staff, people that have been with me on the vineyard side and in production and, and um, finance and sales that have 20 plus years is, is not unusual. Uh, but I couldn't do that if we didn't grow because everybody wants more opportunity and more uh, ability to grow. And if you don't grow, they're gonna go find that opportunity elsewhere. Um, so I, uh, I also enjoy it, but but I think that that growth through the um, 
early 2000s was, you know, we're probably, you know, well, we have about 10 times more vineyard than we did when I started, and our business is probably, yeah, eight to 10 times bigger. Um, and to be able to do that growth through maintaining quality and uh, hiring great people, and, and uh, I also, you know, I couldn't do it without the growth of the industry, right? So um, I could say I had a plan and it was gonna happen either way, but if you don't have the growth of the Oregon wine industry uh, growing alongside us or, or with us or in conjunction with us, then, then it's not possible. So um, I feel um, fortunate that we're able to, uh, to grow and also to grow organically in the uh, vineyard and wine space. Got a lot of friends in Napa and other parts of California that even very successful wineries along the same lines as here. Uh, but when I talk to them about planting more vineyard or, or buying more ground or buying existing vineyards, they're just like, well, it's not possible because um, there's too many people coming out from the outside with a lot of capital. And these are capital intensive um, um, endeavors with with wine and grapes and so I still I feel fortunate that um, we're still able to plant more vineyard and buy more vineyard ground and nothing's holding us back in that regard tell me about the, the sort of the first expansion then as as you started looking in the, in the 2000s where what were you sort of seeking as you as growth was it just any kind of growth you could find or were you looking for something specific well I think, you know, Pinot Noir is always the king and, you know, for us planting more really great Pinot Noir sites and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're here in Oregon um, and you look at the wines people uh, enjoy from Oregon wineries, it's all kinds of things. It's, you know, cool climate, Northern European varietals, but it's, you know, Pinot Gris and Riesling and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Gamay and all this, but the farther you get away from Oregon and a lot of our growth has been in, um, you know, obviously important wine states like New York and Florida and Texas and California, but also in export. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> the farther you get away from Oregon, the more it's really just about Pinot Noir. And maybe that's a shame, but also, you know, if you're if you're an avid wine consumer in you know in Tokyo or Hong Kong or um, or Seoul, you know, you 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 can buy wines from anywhere. And so you want the best of the best, and Pinot Noir certainly shines here. So to answer your question, you know, Pinot Noir was a big part of our growth plan, and um, and uh, yeah, we feel fortunate that you know we we found a market for it. <laughs> uh, with that kind of growth, you mentioned obviously having to having to grow the, grow the staff and all of that. So tell me about that, about finding building a team, and about starting to manage all these different sites that were that were not you know right here on the estate. Well, I think. You know, early days, my parents, you know, they never really had the opportunity to have long-time, long-term employees that they had a lot of great people that kind of moonlighted in and out of their lives here. And it really helped in the early days with a lot of really amazing things, but, but they were never able to really, not just hire, but also then um, train and support um, folks that, um, that this was going to be their life and their passion. And uh, so... Um, you know, good thing for us, we're able to, to kind of do that now. Managing people is a big part of my job. Um, you know, we have about 50 employees. Um, half that is on the vineyard side of it, which is, uh, you know, I love working. Uh, we've just got an amazing vineyard crew that 
that uh, full-time, year-round folks that not just, you know, not just, they, they are, they're super uh, passionate and amazing on the vineyard side, uh, but then they also help inside with bottling and at harvest with sorting grapes and things like that. <clears throat> We've been able to build kind of a family of, uh, of great um, workers, uh, both inside the winery and also on the vineyard side, that um, I think, you know, I just can't say enough about their loyalty. And uh, if we can kind of grow as a business where we're um, taking care of those folks, and I always say for all the vineyard uh, guys and gals, because it's a mixed crew now, uh, that, you know, just find one thing that you can do uh, in addition to vineyard work, which is so important, but find one thing you can do to um, to add value to the company. And so that might be on the bottling line. It might be sorting grapes, pumping, you know, racking wine, moving things, uh, you know, managing a small crew, uh, driving tractor, all these, you know, these kind of value add things. And if if we can find you the opportunity to do that, then we can afford to, you know, pay a living wage. I think our average wage in the vineyard is almost twenty dollars an hour, and we do we have healthcare and uh, one month paid time off and things that allow us to to have uh, not just uh, transitory uh, uh, field work, but literally people that are invested in the project. And uh, I'm especially proud of that. Uh, but we've also have um, employees on the uh, very high level employees on sales and and uh, finance side. So as a as a, a manager of all those people, it's interesting because you've got people of all um, all walks of life, and uh, um, it's it's a it's a team that has a really broad history, and then. If we can all come together to do good work, mm -hmm. it'll grow the business. And I, I think, you know, that's really been uh, part of the culture here is that, you know, if you, if you can be a part of that and be a part of the good things, uh, it'll be good for you and it'll be good for the person next to you. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's the goal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think part of that too is that, you know, I'll say like my parents from the very beginning, obviously I said earlier, we lived in a trailer without running water or electricity for two years, they did not do this for, to count money. You know, like that was, it's not part of the deal at all. They really, you know, they have a great life and they're able to travel and see things and have a good retirement. But uh, I think I learned from them that uh, that's, you know, sitting around counting your dollars isn't, that's not fun. You know, like, let's see what we can build. Let's see uh, who we can help, you know. Um, between my parents and my wife and I, we've been able to donate over $2 million to charities both in Oregon and, and farther afield. And um, people are like, oh, that's so generous. I'm like, I don't know, I think of it as an opportunity. And like, I feel fortunate that, you know, we're able to give back that way. And uh, it's not a burden, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, an honor. With that growth, of course, came, of course, your, your second label. So tell us about the sort of the birth of Pike Road and how that came to be. Yeah, you know, there's, uh, it was a, we put a lot of thought into it. We, we try to focus it as a, as a sister winery as opposed to a second label, just because there's a lot of like, you know, people have started second labels and if they don't put energy into them, um, they just kind of go up and down based on, you know, how your sales are on your frontline wines with your, your with your, um, original winery. So 
we wanted to build it and I think part of the impetus was, um, a big part was I'd uh, worked with growers for the last 20 years. Uh, we've got, I bought from Shea Vineyard and Temperance Hill and um, just Ferrisang, all these really amazing vineyards around the valley. And it's one of the reasons why we were able to um, grow and purchase other ground. So like uh, a vineyard we own, Wind Hill, another vineyard called Five Mountain were ones that we'd leased and then bought. So um, becoming, having Elk Cove be 100% estate um, wouldn't, wouldn't have allowed me the opportunity to, to buy grapes from the Eola Hills, which is an amazing growing area that I just don't happen to own any vineyards there, but maybe I will someday. And so um, I was like, well, let's start Pike Road as a sister winery that we make the wines here um, it's made in the same way. It's just um, a higher percentage of it is purchased fruit from quality vineyards around the valley. And uh, it's on a tear right now. It's, uh, you know, the price point's good. It can kind of, some high-end restaurants pour it by the glass. And um, I feel like it, it, uh, it kind of fits a real great niche in the market. And uh, we're excited to continue to grow that as well. So we're buying more grapes and I have my longtime associate winemaker, Heather Perkin, is uh, um, she's officially the, the winemaker for Pike Road. So she's taken all that off my plate. We've worked really well together as a team on all the wines, but if she can be uh, uniquely responsible for Pike Road, and then uh, I can uh, focus a little more on Elk Cove. Mm -hmm. And we've got a tasting room in McMinnville on Third Street that is a great way to expose people to our wines. We We try to, you know, compliment what we do up here where, you know, if people find us through Pike Road, um, they can come up here for a tasting. And if people initially are longtime great customers for Elk Cove, they can go down to Pike Road and see what's going on down there. So um, that's been uh, that's been a really good thing for us, I think, as a business. Mm -hmm. Tell me about selling wine. Obviously, a big, big part of your role, and bigger, bigger, bigger all the time with all the wine you have. Uh, tell me about how you've gotten into all these markets. How you, you know, international, international distribution. What, what have been the keys, and what have been sort of the, the victories along the way for you? I think you know initially it was uh, a lot of you know legwork. Um, it's uh, you know we tend to go through cycles, and sometimes I think especially when the economy is really hot. Everybody's looking for the brand new thing, you know, the newest wine, the newest label. And uh, and then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of end up, you know, maybe if there's a downturn, people are like, they seek out the comfortable and uh, uh, and what they know. And I think we kind of hit both those with Pike Road being a newer brand and Elk Cove being more historic. Um, yeah, just, um, you know, selling wine, it is, you know, it's not... It's definitely a, a truism that, you know, growing grapes and making wine is really fun, but selling wine is hard and you need to invest in, um, the, to do it, nothing, um, nothing like doing it yourself, right? People want to talk to the person that's making the wine that has full skin in the game, but I've also hired amazing people that, uh, tell my story and our family story throughout the U.S. and in those export markets. And they do a great job of, of telling that story. And um, I, um, you know, we always say 
we're gonna make wines we like to make. We make wines that we'd like to drink and enjoy. And you just gotta find people that have the same taste as you. <laughs> and that's worked pretty well. We've, we've uh, you know, uh, it's not that every, I mean, we're also, we have the benefit of the US being an amazing market for wine. And uh, I'd never wanna take that for granted that, um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, if we're from a very small, if you're from New Zealand, you just have to look elsewhere because there's no way New Zealand can soak up all the wine they make. Uh, but in America, we actually, you know, we sell 90% of our wine uh, domestically. We love export as a growth opportunity and to show our wines to compete against the best of the world. But we can sell it all here in America. It's, a, it's an amazing market. And with the export market, are there unique challenges to selling wine in, in Seoul or Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there, it's interesting, you know, that the education piece is important. Um, you're uh, describing things that maybe they haven't come visited yet. Um, so it's a little bit theoretical, but for the most part, the folks that we sell wine to in, uh, overseas, um, they're just, they're passionate enthusiasts that they've read all about us and they've read about Oregon and, and uh, um, you know, we love, again, this whole notion of like having to compete with the wine, wines of the world. We saw a lot of wine into the UK. <clears throat> That's a very developed market. Um, it's a media market. So when we do well um, in the UK and get write-ups in magazines and things like that, it, there's a, a carryover effect to other markets. Um, also, saw, I, we sell quite a bit of wine. Obviously, Canada is a great market, all through Scandinavia, just because they don't produce a lot of wine, but they love wine. And, uh, and then we sell uh, quite a bit of wine in Australia, which is funny, but my wife is from there, so maybe that <laughs> we, get it, we have a home court advantage. How has this property changed and developed in the, in the time since you've been, you've been kind of running things here? Uh, we planted a little bit more grapes here at the estate. Um, just tried to find, um, there's a lot of steep hillsides here that we kind of can shoehorn in some amazing vineyards. Uh, it's a 200 acre property um, and we only have 50 acres of grapes. So that means we have a lot of acres of uh, where we grow fir trees and it's habitat for um, all kinds of critters and, and uh, amazing oak trees and things like that. And, I think I'm just fine with that. I, I, I love the 50 acres we have here, but uh, we'd have to get into some real steep hillsides to, to put more on. And I, I just assume, uh, you know, overall we have 450 acres of grapes and on about 900 acres of, of land. And uh, I like having a high percentage of, of uh, you know, ground that can provide habitat. We, I think last year at harvest, I was out in the far side of La Boheme and um, sampling grapes for trying to decide when we were going to pick and you know a mama bear and two cubs were sampling grapes on the row after beside me so <laughs> we uh, we kind of scared each other and, uh, and I love that you know I think that you know this property uh, being tucked up kind of into the coast range being a little higher elevation um, there's challenges to it but it really allows us to we don't have any neighbors it's my parents put the winery in tasting room right in the middle of 200 acres and 
you know, I've talked to other friends that have wineries and they've got, you know, neighbor problems and, you know, disputes and this and that. It's like, really? Like, we just don't, yeah, it's amazing. We're just up here on our own. Plus we've been on the hill probably longer than anybody else. So that helps. You mentioned obviously the tasting room up here. Tell me about the sort of hospitality experience here and the, and the DTC part of things. How has that grown and evolved? Well, it's always been an important part of what my parents uh, started and uh, we've continued it through. Um, obviously selling wine uh, retail, it's a great way to, to make a little added margin um, compared to selling it through the three-tier system in other states. We can make money both ways, but what I think about when I think about our tasting room here is a, a, an opportunity to tell our story and cement relationships with consumers that can go out and be our advocates in the market. And uh, it's not wishful thinking, it, it happens every day, you know, where people come up and they have a great experience here, have a good tasting, and then, uh, you know, they go home and, and, and tell their friends and they uh, go to the wine shop they shop at around the country and say, I was just in Oregon and Elk Cove's amazing. And then, and you should have those wines here. And it's like, you know, this kind of marketing that, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't afford to buy that. It's just, uh, but you know, we have, and, and there's so many tasting rooms all throughout the valley now. And when we started, and my parents built this current tasting room in 1981, I think there were only 10, maybe. And they probably weren't open all the time. And now there's hundreds of them. And um, we feel fortunate that it's kind of like this virtuous cycle where we, we are well represented in wine shops and restaurants throughout the country. So when people come to Oregon, they get recommended to come here. And then when they come here and they have a great experience, they go to those restaurants and wine shops and, and say how a great time they had, and then it kind of keeps going. So even though we're off the beaten path, um, we get a lot of people coming here because they'd heard you know, Robert Parker once wrote it up as the most beautiful vineyard in Oregon. And I think you can't, um, <clears throat> even if you come from the outside with a lot of capital, you can't replicate the beauty of a site. You mentioned earlier that your sort of winemaking style, you'll obviously learn, learn from your dad and, and, and do things sort of similar. How would you describe your winemaking style and how has it grown and changed? <laughs> well, I think, it, you know, it, it's vineyard based. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the vineyard trying to... Um, just get a feel for it. I think you'll make better decisions in the winery. I can't imagine, you know, there's a lot of places around the world where winemakers just get things showing up in a bin on their doorstep. <clears throat> and they hadn't been to the vineyard or they hadn't been there recently. And I just don't know how you'd make the best decisions if you weren't out there. So um, I think that that kind of informs my winemaking. And then uh, overall, you know, I'm a big fan of, of smaller lot fermentations and I like to control temperature, so we've got all these really cool small stainless steel tanks that I can uh, um, ferment in. And uh, <clears throat> even though we make a lot of white wine, I reckon 90% of my energy in terms of experimentation and, and innovation and, and pushing the envelope, all that's about Pinot Noir, 90% of it, because that's what we'll eventually, you know, that's what we'll be, we are known for and what we'll be judged by. So. Uh, I love the single vineyard wines we make. We've got some amazing vines from old, old vines from either vineyards we planted or ones that we've been fortunate enough to been able to purchase from other folks <clears throat> and uh, focus on those for single vineyard wines. But probably my most important wine is our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, which is like a $30 bottle of wine. 
and um, it's the most important because that's people's first exposure to our wine. And uh, you know, you can make amazing single vineyard wines, but no one graduates up to tasting them because if your basic bottling isn't great, um, then you know you're not showing your yourself. Mm-hmm. As you. so, you know, we we spend a lot of energy on that, and everything goes into French oak cooperage, and um, you know, it's it's interesting because compared to other in- industries. Um, when it comes to winemaking, like there's no real secrets, and um, a lot of us make wines kind of similar to each other uh, because we've kind of cooperated and figured out the best way to to make wine here in Oregon. And then it does kind of come down to who's got the best vineyard sites. <laughs> so if you're doing everything right in the winery, then uh, the best wines are from the best vineyards. So in a way, that's exciting for me because we're, like I said, we're constantly looking to either plant new ground or purchase existing vineyards. Speaking to, to this site specifically, obviously you've, you've known it your whole life. Uh, what do you, what, what is unique about it? What, what, what shows up in the wine that makes a wine from here unique? It was one of the first vineyard sites on marine sediment soils, which now there's tons of them. This was the first vineyard in the Yamhill Carlton district, which is really well known for these marine sediment soils. And um, I think they're harder to work with. They are, um, they're thin soils. Uh, even when we plant new vineyards here, sometimes we won't get a crop for four or five years because it's just so difficult to get them established. But when they are, they're established, they're amazing. So we've got La Boheme as a single vineyard wine that we've made making back to the uh, late 80s. And uh, Roosevelt is just kind of just after that. Um, this site is different than a lot in that we're higher up, we're at 800 feet in elevation, kind of tucked up against the coast range. In the, um, in the 70s, it was thought of as being too cool out here to consistently ripen grapes. Obviously things have kind of warmed up a little bit, uh, but I think more importantly, it's, uh, it's cooler, so we do harvest later, but because we're tucked up to, towards the coast range, we have the rain shadow is more in effect here, so we get less rain, we get less heat than they would like in Dundee or our other vineyards in the Chehalem Mountains that we own. Uh, we notice uh, it's a cooler site, later ripening, but we're not getting the rains in October that you would on these other sites. So that's uh, an advantage as well. And uh, you know, we, we just have to be kind of gutsy about waiting to pick until the perfect moment. So like last year we, we picked into November, so. And that's, you know, that's where you're gonna do your best work is when you're willing to take those risks. As you've, as you've expanded with Vineyard Land, what, is there a certain characteristic you look for when you're, when you're either looking for an existing vineyard to purchase or a, a piece of land to plant on? Well, I mean, I think we're so fortunate in Oregon that we've got three main soil classifications, the marine sediment like we have here, the volcanic or jory type soil, which we own a vineyard called Clay Court on that, and then the lust soils of the kind of um, eastern side of the Chehalem Mountains, uh, which we've got a few vineyards on that as well. So, you know, when we're looking at new properties, um, I like all three of those soil types. They're, they are very different from each other, but they're all inevitably in one year, one's my favorite, the next year it's another one, the next year it's another one. So um, I feel fortunate that for Oregonians that we've got these um, amazing 
soil. So at that point, we're looking for, you know, steep hillsides, south to southeast kind of um, airing on the, those sides of the hillsides. Um, but as I said earlier, you know, the best vineyard in Oregon probably hasn't been planted yet. So we're still willing to take those kind of risks and, and put some grapes in the ground and then you won't know for 10, 12, 15 years, see what it does. <laughs> so looking back at this point, what's, what's been the greatest challenge to you running Elk Cove? What's, what's been the thing that's been the most difficult? Well, I mean, it's a very capital intensive business that um, a lot of people come into it um, as uh, second careers with a lot of capital from other things. And it's, you know, we've managed it. It's not a problem, but I remember from the very early days, I remember telling my kids because they would see, you know, oh, that winery is palatial estate and <laughs> they drive very fancy cars and well, wineries really make a lot of money. And it's like, a lot of people came in with a lot of money and you know, that's not us. We need to grow from the ground up organically. And, and uh, as I said, we're still able to, to purchase land and, and um, buy existing vineyards, which I feel really fortunate for. But compared to other businesses, um, wine businesses can often be very subsidized by other sources of, of money. And, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm not really complaining. I, it, I've done fine, but it's just amazing how, um, for some people, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and then when I think about like taking that on to um, maybe a third generation, fourth generation, um, there's so much value tied up in the land that um, vineyards and winery, vineyards especially, can become worth so much money that it makes it difficult to transition to a new generation because there's a lot of value there, but it doesn't mean that there's a lot of cash flow to, to uh, accommodate for that value. And also a lot of work to do. Yeah, and it, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I grew up doing it, so I kind of knew what the deal was. And, and my kids, have, they've done some uh, stuff around here and worked harvest a bit, but we'll see. <laughs> See if it's for them. So since you have such a such a kind of multifaceted job, I'm I'm curious what a typical day or week looks like for you. What do you have sort of a, a routine in mind, or is it every day a little different? Every day is different. I feel really um, I'm, I love that side of it. That uh, you know, even a big part of I, what I still do on the production side is I I uh, take care of all our bottling, and uh, you know in some ways it's, it's, it's very blue collar work, you know, like sweeping the floors and keeping the guys fixing equipment. Um, a lot of wineries use mobile bottling systems and they're great. Those guys are amazing. But, um, because my parents started at a time when there was no such thing as a mobile bottler, they have always owned their own bottling line. And, um, I've got a bottling line that I bought 20 years ago that I can tear it down and build it back up. And, and so, you know, Probably for four months of the year, I focus a lot on bottling. Uh, two months of the year is harvest and, and processing. And then in between there is running the business and doing some sales work and, and, uh, and managing employees and things like that. But I always want to stay tied. You know, I think my winemaker friends tease me 
about me on the bottling line because they think it's kind of a waste, right, of your efforts. And I'm like, well, that's your last opportunity to see these wines to their final stage. And one of the things about bottling is it's, it's probably the most um, fraught time for oxidation, certainly. And um, if, if I'm, you know, no one's going to care quite as much as me. I've got great employees. They care a lot, but no one's going to care quite as much as me that it has to be perfect. And, and uh, you know, owning our own bottling line, if, if things aren't perfect that day, we stop. We wait. We, figure, we fix it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's uh, especially sell, selling wine uh, very far away from home base. Uh, you gotta, it's gotta be 100%. <laughs> mm -hmm. So obviously you have a pretty unique perspective on the growth of the industry, having pretty much seen all of the growth of the industry. So tell me about some of the kind of, for you, kind of the, the milestones along the way for Oregon wine. What were some of the things that, that were a big deal for the industry that you, that, that you saw from your perspective? Well, you know, certainly hats off to the, to the really early, early folks, you know, um, David Lett and um, I always bring up Charles Corey because um, that's who helped us with our plant material here and some early advice after having spent time in Alsace and, and uh, throughout Europe, he was a real good resource for my parents. After they planted, they went to Europe and picked grapes and kind of soaked that in as well. But I think the cool thing about Charles, and he's not often remembered because he actually wasn't here for that many years, um, but you know, he, he wrote his thesis on, um, his master's thesis on the notion that you need to grow grapes at the absolute marginal edge of where it's possible, because that's where you're gonna get the fullest expression of flavor. And it's, you know, I mean, people probably didn't believe it at the time, but I think Oregon's really proved it to be true, that if you can grow grapes on the climactic edge, that's when you're going to get true complexity, dark fruits, you know, really all the things you want to get. I mean, it's a lesson we sh should have learned for just from where these grapes are grown in Europe, right? Northern climates for these cool climate uh, grapes, so important. So, you know, we, we started on a good footing, not just with the whole notion, but also great plant material. We still plant pomard and Vadensville that are the original two uh, plant materials that we planted. Uh, we think they're, you know, classic Oregon. Um, and then on through, you know, there was a time in the early 80s when there was a lot of interest in Oregon um, and, uh, you know, some, some amazing wines. I would say some of the wines my dad made in the 80s are some of the best wines we'll ever make here. Uh, but not just my folks, but all the pioneers and because of the climate at the time, there was just a lot of hit or miss things. And there were highs and then lows and then highs and lows. It's really through the 90s. You know, we had tough years and then we had great years. And uh, I think that was hard for the market. Like, well, what are you? Are you, you know, are you able to make, you know, these amazingly complex, rich, interesting wines uh, in a vintage like 1989? Or are you getting washed out by rain in a vintage like, you know, 1995. And so um, there were a lot of starts and stops, um, but um, I think, you know, some of those early 80s wines that got us a lot of attention and then also brought more people in. And I think that was really important. I think the Duran family, I mean, they're, they're the best, right? Like, um, I feel so fortunate that we've had we've have a lot of interest from folks from burgundy and they're all 
been great partners in what we're doing, but I don't think it could get any better than, than the Druins, partly because um, while they're very much Burgundians, uh, they're also uh, people of the world and uh, had a real international perspective on things. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, them showing up in, and, uh, in, the, in, that, in 1987, 88 was a real milestone for us and quickly followed by folks coming up from California that were excited about uh, being a part of a new era up here. Ken Wright, Lynn Prenner-Rash. Um, it really helped. I think the pioneers, including my folks and the Ponzi's and David Adelsheim and the Sokol Blossers, um, kind of, uh, you know, it, it's always nice to have people come up and say, you guys got something special here. <laughs> let's, let's help figure out how to move it forward. Um, and then in kind of my era, um, you know, having, um, well, I think there's, you know, there might be a 800 wineries in, all, in Oregon now. It's crazy how many. Uh, but a lot of young people, I was at a tasting the other day, and I, I still feel like I'm, partly because of how I grew up, I still feel like I must be the youngest person in the room, because I used to be. And then I was like, wait, I'm kind of the oldest person in the room. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's great to see, you know, those uh, young people's enthusiasm for um, continuing to, to build what we're, what we're doing here in Oregon. You talked about the sort of the way that the, the growth of Elcove coincided with and was made possible by the growth of the industry. What have been the the sort of on the flip side of what you just talked about of the all the, the good things? What are the challenges of the growth of Oregon wine and how and how fast it's grown? Are you, are there things you've seen that have challenged the industry? Well, I think you know um, obviously folks coming in um, and uh, just more competition for grape sourcing and things like that. Um, ultimately, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just um, it kind of you have to take deep breaths and and uh, rely on your you know historic relationships with mm -hmm. folks. And um, you know I'm glad there's still a good representation of folks from my generation, the kind of second generation folks, and you know the ones that have had s built on their parents' success. Um, I think they also kind of brought to the table an entrepreneurial. Uh, spirit to it because um, you know and a love for wine because if you don't love wine and you don't love um, figuring out ways to grow then you're just it just seems like a lot of work and so why do it <laughs> and I get that it's just if you're not passionate about it don't don't try because you won't succeed it's too hard of an industry to to um, to find success if you're not really passionate and motivated sort of your 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 contemporary second generation uh, I know there's kind of a special bond amongst amongst some of you having kind of been grown up in the industry and then taken over tell me about that and about sort of seeing the industry from the perspective that perspective of, of the sort of second generation of the founders I think that's really helped me I mean um, you know growing up I knew all these kids that we'd see each other at you know various wine events and getting dragged along to tastings or to steamboat conference and in, in the umqua and so i kind of knew them um the certainly the Sokol blasters and the ponzi's uh as kids but you know you're kind of doing your own thing and um when uh, i came back in my early 20s um you know some of the first people we started spending a lot of time with were uh, louisa and her sister maria ponzi and louisa's husband eric comiker and um you know i think that you know we're 
now lifelong friends. We travel together all the time and our kids have grown up together. And uh, it was good for me, I think, to see that, um, you know, we weren't alone out here on an island, mm -hmm. that uh, other people were excited and motivated um, about doing great work here. Um, I love and really treasure my relationships, not just with the Ponzi's, but uh, Soka Blossers as well. And, uh, um, you know, there's, it's funny, like in the early days, I think my parents, you pretty much knew everybody in all of Oregon, right? Because there were only maybe 10 or 15 or 20 people doing this. And so they knew everybody. And now with, you know, 800 wineries, I can't know everybody. Um, but, you know, um, folks like Jesse Lang and, and uh, um, Ben and Mimi Castile and those folks, um, at Bethel Heights, they're a little far enough away that we don't see each other all that often. But when you do, you can kind of take a deep breath and you know you're kind of going through similar things. Uh, we always try to, whenever there's a new person coming up in it, you, know, it's, you take them out to lunch and chat about how to maybe set things up uh, as a family and to make sure that you're being fair to not just the first generation, but also to yourself. And, uh, you know, the most successful ones are all people that uh, really embrace that um, competitive entrepreneurial spirit and then also help, uh, you know, work with each other to, to build each other up. And fortunately for, for me now, um, you know, having been here now, these vines are almost 50 years old. I guess next year they'll be 50 years old. Um, it puts you in this kind of category of um, a, a rare um, gem in the valley, so that's nice too because that helps. And along those same lines, what is the what's been the what is the biggest challenge of, of being sort of a second generation? Do you do you feel extra pressure? Do you feel is there something different about being in your role? Oh, I think in the early days it was a lot of it. You know, everybody wanted to compare you to your folks and. Uh, and that's not fair to either party. I mean, I mentioned before about my dad having, um, you know, he, he was he was a winemaker here for 20 years, um, but he was also a doctor. He also went to Harvard. He went to Stanford. He's a very accomplished person. And I think it's a little bit rough when people come in and say, you're a better winemaker than your dad. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't. I didn't go to Harvard or Stanford either, like, don't, you know, or vice versa. In the early days, it was like, oh, I liked your dad's wines better than yours. And I don't know why people seem to need to have this, you know, to pit you against each other. Um, but uh, I don't really face that anymore. It's That's more of a historical mm -hmm. thing. I, I feel for if any of my kids decide to be a part of it, I, I feel for them on that front. <laughs> You talked about the, the changes you've seen in Oregon wine. What does the industry look like now in 2023? You mentioned sort of the number of wineries. What are the sort of prospects for Oregon? What does the industry look like at the moment? And what are the maybe biggest challenges facing it? Well, I think that, you know, um, I guess starting with the last one, I think the biggest challenge is, is going to be maintaining um, that tie to really who we are and why we do what we do. Um, that's a hard thing to... Um, I think we've done a good job. I think for the most part, people that have joined us in the industry, they're joining us for a reason. Mm -hmm. They buy into the ethos of the area. Um, and it'd be a real shame if, if that changed. I think that look, judging by other um, wine growing areas, I think that's a hard thing is to maintain that culture. Um, 
I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges right now, I think, is, is uh, you know, um, kind of continuing to, to forge those relationships with other people. I feel like part of my role and a lot of us in the second generation uh, would be to be a touchstone for, for what was going on in the past, but also honoring innovation and them pushing their own boundaries about what's possible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we obviously have, um, it's so different in terms of like access to capital and the ability to grow your business through professional relationships with banks and, mm -hmm. and people like that. I mean, that's been a, that's a great thing that's changed, you know? Um, I just hope, I mean, I hope people uh, continue to want to come and be a part of this industry. And I, I hope, you know, that they, again, continue that kind of buy-in to the ethos of the area. <laughs> It'd be a shame if people got really secretive and like, and that has happened in other areas where it's like all about non-disclosure agreements and, you know, not talking to each other about how to basically build each other up and you know, rising tide lifts all ships. I mean, we've, that's been what's helped Oregon from the very beginning and I would hate it if that didn't continue on. <laughs> so obviously you've mentioned that the, the business has grown every year. Um, what is next for Elk Cove? What's on your horizon, Elk Cove and Pike Road? Uh, what are you looking ahead to in the, in the upcoming years? We still want to grow more. I mean, we just bought 200 acres of land that will be, um, it's somewhat cleared. We're gonna actually um, take 80 acres and put it in a land trust for um, oak, uh, oak savanna habitat. Mm -hmm. But we wanna plant another 100 acres, 120 acres over there. Um, and um, we just wanna keep, you know, keep relevant, keep growing, um, keep providing opportunity for, for folks here at the winery to uh, better themselves and have more more on their plate, therefore more rewarded. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I guess more, probably more work on the export side, just because I think it's really a great, we, we have a somewhat of an obligation to do it as one of the historic wineries, you know, that uh, we need to get Oregon's name out there. And I love all the stuff that's been done about, uh, in terms of uh, providing, um, infrastructure for folks to come visit. Mm -hmm. So um, in the very early days, there was really no, I guess you'd go stay at a Motel 6 if you wanted to come to wine country. And now, you know, look at what's gone on in McMinnville. Mm -hmm. And uh, Linfield's been a big part of that with uh, just providing space for events like Pinot Camp, IPNC, things like that. And, um, you know, um, all the work that's been done on Third Street to make that better. In the past, I think we were always like, well, Portland will provide uh, <clears throat> a spot for people to come and come to wine country. And honestly, now we're just like, yeah, Portland's great. You should go there, but you can come straight to McMinnville and you can come straight to Newburgh and you can stay in an amazing B&B &B in Yamhill. I mean, there's like so many things that uh, restaurants, uh, accommodations, places uh, that um, really can, we can support them. They can support us. It's good. I'm, you know, I graduated from Yamhill Carlton High School, and um, it's nice to see, you know, people that I went to high school with start businesses, work 
in the in the industry, whether it's directly for wineries or for those peripheral businesses that support the winery and we support them. So. You also mentioned a project going on here on site coming up. Tell me about that. Yeah, we're going to build a new tasting room. Uh, well, it's kind of like a, a private tasting area for um, small events and, and tastings for about 20 to 30 people um, in where our existing tasting room space was. And then uh, more office space because we've got a lot more employees and, <laughs> and we've shoehorned them into the production facility and for many years. And we're going to build a really beautiful um, office space, but then we're really excited about this private tasting area as a way to continue. We get a, so much interest from um, corporate groups, not just in you know Nike, Intel, those folks, but from out of state that want to bring people here. You know, they want to stay at the Allison or the Atticus, but then they want to come here for um, for a dinner or a, or a private tasting. So we're just you know kind of purpose built space that will be. Um, perfect. It's also going to have a little more undercover uh, outdoor area, which is something we, you know, we learned from COVID where we didn't really have that very much. And uh, uh, so we had all these tents and, and heaters and hopefully we won't go back to COVID times, but it'll be nice to have a really dedicated un undercover outdoor space that can make coming to wine country be more um, year round. Mm -hmm. It's something that, you know, uh, Napa's done a really good job of that, where people go to Napa every month of the year and and enjoy it and everything. I think we need to figure out ways. Uh, obviously, it's a little darker up here, a little in the winter, and a little, um, you know, maybe not spring doesn't come quite as soon. But we can do more cellar tours and things that get people out here when it's not just the, you know, five months of the year when we get our perfect weather. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And what about for your future? Is there anything uh, your, you yourself are looking ahead to? Um, you know, um, my my last kids off to college this year, so um, it's certainly freed uh, my wife and I. It's going to free my wife and I have to be able to do a lot of things. My parents have been avid travelers uh, in their through their retirement, but even before that, and they've been to every continent, and um, and you know, we'd like to do more of that, but. But I feel like I've got, you know, 15, 20 more years to help uh, help shepherd this business along. And, you know, maybe um, maybe someone else in the family will be interested in, in coming back. And I want to provide that opportunity for either one of my kids or my sister's kids um, to, to, you know, be a part of this um, family business. I think my parents are they're They're super happy that it's uh, it's continued on. I think, uh, you know, some of their contemporaries that maybe didn't have kids that could or would or should take their business to the next level, um, you know, they get kind of shut out a little bit. And my parents get to, and my mom does all our gardening here, that's what she loves. And then she also comes and they do wine events and, and uh, um, get, you know, I guess appreciated and honored by the folks that come here to our tastings and and uh, I want them to continue to be able to do that and I guess you know long term I'd love it if that was in my future so just come and take a victory lap every once in a while sure why not <laughs> yeah. and also just to see it really going in a really good direction mm -hmm. and I think there's things that you know that's kind of even though that's a ways in my future uh, I think there's things I can do to um, make it easier for someone to 
be able to take the ball and run with it mm-hmm. and uh, and not have to not have to worry you know my parents never put much pressure on me they were always like good job <laughs> and uh, I just want to be in a position where I could do that without being worried or stressed mm-hmm. <laughs> and last question for you is uh, what is your biggest accomplishment so far what makes you proudest running a successful enough business that has allowed us to financially uh, afford to be able to plant so many acres of grapes and buy existing vineyards I think that's you know just buying the vineyards you know if you got a big pile of money somewhere that's easy to do but we had to do it organically through um, uh, cash flow and through borrowing money having good relationships with banks proving yourself so that they will lend you money and then be able to pay off those notes when you uh, get farther down the track Um, so you know Taking it from 40 acres when I started back with my parents to our 450 now is uh, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. Um, and you know, the other side of that is yeah, just being able to build a sustainable business that's provided you know jobs for uh, an opportunity for lots of people at all different uh, scales. And I'm not so much worried. I mean, I've got amazing people that have worked for me and sales and finance and you know, executive level positions, they'll do fine no matter what. But, uh, you know, got people that, you know, have a gal that works on the bottling line and, and out in the vineyard, and she's originally from Guatemala, and uh, and she's got two kids that are here in school, and one of them has special needs. And it's like being able to, like, I was like, why do we do what we do? Well, part of the reason we do what we do is so we can, um, it's not charity, she is a kick-ass worker, uh, but it's providing her that opportunity, appreciating her, and then being able to reward her and her family with, you know, things like living wage and, and health care and things like that. So that's, you know, if, when I think about, um, you know, corporate ownership of wineries, those are the first things to get cut. And, and you know, it's, uh, you know, they don't, I think when we have corporate ownership and, and or, or absentee owners, they don't see the value in that. They just think someone does the work. I don't know who they are. And it's like, you know, I just want to still be where we know who they are. And then you honor them with, you know, rewards for everything they deserve, which they deserve it, you know, so. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? No, I just want to say, you know, thanks for, for making the effort. And like I said, we really appreciate uh, all that you and Linfield have done for to capture these things, and I don't know where it'll end up someday, but maybe you know my grandkids at some point will come. They'll be interested enough to come, <laughs> or you know, for research opportunities yeah, for, for other sure. folks. Absolutely. Yeah, we're always happy to to help with the archive and and uh, support the good work at Linfield. So thank you, appreciate that, and it's it's been very nice having an alcove collection in the archive almost from the beginning, and we appreciate that and look forward to seeing it grow as well. So thank you so much for your time, for welcoming us back to this beautiful place, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you, Adam. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.